Welcome, everybody, to Cancel Too Soon, the podcast where myself, Kevin Ford, and the other host, Jerome Cusan, discuss shows we feel may have been canceled too soon. This month is part one of a three-part series where we look back at the Netflix series Glow, The Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. Jerome, you finally did it. You finally got me to talk wrestling with you after all these years. I thought we were done with this, and yet, here we are. Is this the part where I put the, uh, the, can I just reenact the Al Pacino from the Godfather 3 gift? Just when you thought I was out, they pull me back in? More or less, yes. But that's okay because uh, I enjoy this show quite a bit. The thing I love about this show is not only have you helped me discover some shows that I've really enjoyed, but it gives me an excuse to rewatch some old favorites, and Glow was definitely on that list for me. This is the show that I'm angriest about being canceled too soon, and I will save that vitriol for season three. Uh, but just know that that, that the, the, a rant is forthcoming and, uh, there's, there's a lot to say. And I think a lot of it is because you and I being wrestling fans, I think this show hits a lot of different markers for us and in both, in both blatantly obvious and very subtle ways that we're going to get into. I'm sure as we uh, address these three seasons of television, but just know that uh, even though we're, there's a reason that we're doing one season at a time, like with Mind Hunters, like yes, that was one three hour episode, but Kevin and I are not as involved in the world of serial killing as we are in the world of wrestling. I mean, maybe those two things are more similar than we realize, but the reality is, is that I mean, you and I have covered, reviewed wrestling for a number of years, so this is a show that scratches a lot of itches and. I think it is very fitting that we end our Cancel Too Soon run with Glow. I think it's a perfect way to end it. I couldn't agree more. And I also think, you know, the three seasons are pretty distinct. So I think giving them each their own episode treatment is well-deserved for a show like this that's celebrated. I also find it kind of interesting, you know, we're recording this in fall of 2023 where Netflix just had that the wrestlers OVW documentary that is like, so unbelievably carny that it makes me cringe. And you have things like the Cassandra movie coming out from Amazon Prime next week, uh, not to mention Dark Side of the Ring, something you've covered, uh, you know, elsewhere for a number of seasons. So it's interesting that Glow kind of predates all of that, both the documentary and the show. And it's like it's so in- weird that we have this time where there's still so much like wrestling, you know biography stuff on like A&E and these shows coming out on streaming and the Cassandra movie, like more real to life stuff rather than sort of like a fictionalized version of a real thing. Just so interesting that it, it this or rewatch this at a time where a lot of this stuff is out now. Wrestling simultaneously feels less popular than ever, but more exposed than ever, if that makes sense. It does. I've always said that. Well, not always, but especially recently, it's the, there's fewer people watching it when it was most popular, but those people are far more ravenous about their fandom than it, than it used to be. The numbers may be smaller, but those people are spending more, spending more time, you know, their, their breadth of what they'll watch wrestling wise is bigger. So it's, it's just a very interesting pool of people watching things now. But when, you know, I, this is a show that I watched when it aired, you know, when it, when it came out, I definitely watched it as it came each, each season and I was, I think with anything with wrestling, it's really hard for me not to watch it through like a critical lens of some sort or, you know, my expectations are low going in. And I, you know, obviously we'll get into this more, but I feel like Glow really, uh, you know, they, they stuck the landing. Yeah, I think. So it's, you're it's telling so how long did you last with heels 
And I uh, promise this is the only time we're going to address it. But. I forgot about Heels, which just ended too. Two episodes maybe? I watched the first episode and I was like, you know what? I can't do this. Like Stephen Amell writing a script for it was just the dirt worst. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to step away. I'm just going to make myself angry watching the show. And I can imagine, like, can you imagine a doctor watching Grey's Anatomy? No. I can't. I, I mean, I would bet I bet that show would just infuriate them to no end. So and, I think it's a very similar premise. Right. And I have a friend who is an aspiring actress and stuff, and she watched and enjoyed Heels, but she has no connection or enjoyment of pro wrestling whatsoever. So, yeah, I, I 100% can see why maybe there's people who – I'm sure there's some people who do like wrestling who liked it too. I'm not saying there isn't. But for some of us, for some of us watching it, it's, it's too much. It's why I can't watch that OVW documentary. I knew t- I know how carny and like how full of BS it is that I, I can't stomach it. So yeah, that's, I wish, but those are other shows, folks. I think our relationship to TV is so much more different than it used to be. I think with professional wrestling in this time period, and I know that you're going to get into this, but I mean, people watch WWF on a Saturday or Sunday morning with their cereal or like as part of their like morning routine, whereas now professional wrestling is more event oriented with the, with the evening shows and the shows being two or three hours. So the way that we consume wrestling is just different. This isn't like, like with Glow, it was a 60-minute syndicated show that I think was able to slowly kind of grow its audience and get casual fans and get exposure on talk shows. Whereas now, I just think either you're a wrestling fan or you're not, and there's nothing that AEW or WWE is going to do to convince you uh, to sit down and watch unless it's something really extraordinary. Like, of course, if The Rock or Steve Austin comes back, then um, people are going to watch, but like people, I just think you're either invested or you're not. Right. And I think wrestling is a lot of like what Power Rangers was to kids. Like I loved Power Rangers for about a year when I was in kindergarten, watched it religiously, had the toys, all that stuff. And then that phase ended and I've basically never thought about it again. But there are some people who, who grew up with it. They kept watching everything. They're still fans to this day as adults. And that's how some wrestling fans like myself turned out as well. It was something I liked as a kid. And it, you know, that passion and everything grew and all that as I became an adult. But for a lot of people, that's their wrestling experience. You watch it as a kid for a period of time, then you phase out of it. You never think about it again. But with Glow, you talk about the Saturday morning experience. Glow was a real television show, The Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. It aired from 1986 to 1990, and it was a Saturday morning show with an all-female cast of characters where it was like a mix of skits and everybody was like overly characterized. You know, it was a lot of stereotypes or, uh, you know, just caricatures that were featured amongst the cast. Like, you're not going to watch it for, you know, Matt wrestling classics or, or really great matches. It's, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's a fun variety show, basically, that, that wrestling is the backdrop. I never watched Glow. I have no idea if it was in my, you know, my area. By the time it was off the air, I was like one and a half or two. Do you have any memories or anything of watching Glow or even like, in later days, just seeing it on YouTube as a as, as anything. I never watched Glow. I did watch some of Wow, which was kind of a sequel series, I guess you could say. I have this memory of Bobby Heenan calling a Wow pay per view as well in like 2001, and this was that weird nebulous period when WCW and ECW were like either shutting down or about to shut down, and this pay per view aired on. I, I had a hot box at the time, so I believe me, I would never actually pay for this. But 
Um, yeah, I, I remember WoW. I don't remember Glow, though. Glow is just before my time as a wrestling fan. It's something that I definitely had, like, heard about in magazines and stuff and on the internet. And the only thing I'd ever really heard about it was uh, Lisa Moretti, who was Ivory in WWF during – you know, late nineties, early two thousands was like the success story coming out of it. Like the person who actually made a career in wrestling once the show ended, but that's really all I knew about it outside of maybe a picture now and again in a magazine. Um, but it always like the, the way it was always like talked about or presented, it was very much like, it's not real wrestling. It's a joke. Like it's very much frowned upon by some of the, you know, angry old man who yells at clouds in the, in the wrestling space. So it was never something I made the time for ever. But then watching the documentary that comes out in 2012, or maybe it's 2013, one of the two, no, it's 2012. It really kind of changed my attitude about it. And just, I think growing up being older and all that and seeing it through a different lens made me appreciate it more. So I watched the, the glow documentary. I have a very clear memory. It was, I want to say 2013. It was on Netflix and it was around Christmas time. And I was either putting my Christmas tree up or taking it down, and I put on the documentary uh, while I was doing that. And it got a lot of hype by – I know like Kevin Harvey uh, was one of the people who's behind it. Little Egypt from the show was really doing uh, press to hype up the documentary. And by all accounts, it got really good reviews. So I definitely gave it a watch on Netflix at the time, and then I watched it again before rewatching season one of glow. Did you watch it at the time when it was on streaming or have you seen it? I, uh, since? I did. Yes. Uh, I, Cause I had a bit of a uh, interactions with Kevin Harvey quite a bit. I met little Egypt in person. There was a point when Billy Corgan was going to be in a low, in a relationship with a local wrestling company, uh, AEW, which is based out of, which was based out of Berwyn, Illinois. They've run other places in Chicago in the Chicagoland area. But at this point, they were running uh, the Berwyn Eagles Club, which is also going to factor in a, I'm sure, conversation later. Uh, Billy Corgan was doing a music video that AEW is going to be a part of, and he invited Little Egypt uh, to be a part of it. And I think she played a commissioner. I am sure there is a, the music video somewhere on YouTube. Uh, maybe Kevin can find it. I can find it. And we can include it in the show notes. But uh, yeah, so I remember going to this music video thing and actually seeing uh, Little Egypt in person. And uh, I, I could definitely see the appeal. That's all I'm going to say. But it, uh, it, was a, it was a very interesting experience. And the Berwyn Eagles Club is, of course, notable because another prominent smaller wrestling company, Shimmer, uh, was also important in terms of the history of women, of women's wrestling. And I think that when we talk about women's wrestling, we, we should never forget the contributions of Glow as much as people want to make fun of it. I think Glow really illuminated the idea of women's wrestling. And I think in many ways, without Shimmer, a lot of the most prominent wrestlers that you see in both WWE and AEW would not exist. So, uh, I'm sure we're going to talk about Shimmer later, but I, in, when talking about women's wrestling, I always feel a, an obligation to mention Shimmer. I think it's so important to do that. Yeah, very much so. I mean, at the time when it was on the air in 1986 through 1990, I mean, women's wrestling on American television basically didn't exist. You know, Miss Elizabeth was a big valet in WWF and you had a couple female like ring announcers or backstage interviewers in the NWA and other companies. And, you know, WWF had a women's championship at the time, but a lot of those matches just either happened on 
untelevised events or dark matches or weren't they were not at all spotlit. Even if you look at the action figure lines, you know, Miss Elizabeth got one in the original LJN line and then nobody in their nineties line through ninety five. It wasn't really until they really started getting more adult and exploited the sex appeal of women that they started getting more merchandising, more television time and all that. And then it took until the early two thousands or like I'm sorry, like the twenty tens, like twenty fourteen ish for fan backlash to get them to really change and give women's wrestling a proper spotlight. Yeah, um, isn't it remarkable that women's wrestling basically has only existed in I'm not gonna say legitimate form, but as in something where WWE is taking it seriously for less than ten years. That it, is yeah. that is remarkable. It is remarkable, and there's someone on the Glow cast that we'll talk about that I think deserves a lot – that doesn't get enough credit, and she really should for helping bring for uh, sure. women's wrestling products. So, uh, But with all that said, I believe I found the, the music video is a Smashing Pumpkin song called Owata, O-W-A-T-A. There seems to be a lot of footage from an AEW show like Ravens involved in it, but I can't tell who one of the people is in the ring, but cheerleader Melissa is the other – one of the other wrestlers and she's pretty Yeah, I believe there was a women's match on it. And uh you mentioned women's wrestling and it's funny because like if you look at WrestleMania one, like Cindy Lauper was heavily involved in the women's match with Wendy Richter. So yes. it just feels like there was a moment for it, but then Fabulous Mula won the title and that kind of killed it. And sure. I, I you probably have a good distinct memory uh not watching it live, but the jumping bomb angels, I think, were a big deal just in terms of like they're literally doing things that nobody else was doing in the United States. So I feel like that was like a moment for women's wrestling that didn't really go anywhere. But yes. I definitely remember watching Survivor Series 1987 and just being aghast at what I was seeing with uh, with those two young ladies. Yeah, it's really remarkable, and they they, ha- they came and had great matches and just. You know, because they were from before another country and just couldn't stay or because, well, you know, the money wasn't good. Maybe they had to deal with their home organization and got starved out. I say that because I think about their story about the Killer Khan, a male wrestler who was wrestling in the WWF. And apparently he left because it was a deal through New Japan and the checks he was getting were so nominal. He was basically starved out and had to go back home. So who knows why that's the case? But all this to say is it definitely did not get prominently featured and not even really embraced by fans until, uh, you know, I'd say that that market started to get built. Like there were some bubblings of it on the undercurrent in the late 2000s. And then by, you know, early 2010s, the revolution sort of started. But Globe predates all of that by a significant margin, creating a world of exclusively women to be featured in these roles. And I can't say because I wasn't there, but it seemed to be successful for for what it was. And the people who liked it really liked it. And a lot of that's taken from the documentary, which I really like. Uh, you know, looking at it through 2023 eyes is a little bit different than 2013, just because documentaries have expanded so much. Like, this is a really excellent, uplifting, uh, you know, feel good 75 minute documentary, but you can't help but leave it seeing, man, this could have been a mini series because it felt like there was so much that was left on the table to be discussed. But as a documentary itself, I think, you know, if you take it as what it is, especially in that time period, it is really good. What do you what about you? What do you think? I think it's a really good documentary for what it is. I think now it would get blown up and be four or five episodes. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I think you would see better production values. You'd probably see a lot more interviews. I think about the recent American so American Gladiators had 
two documentaries released, one by ESPN, one by Netflix. I, I think the Glow one would probably veer toward veer more toward the Netflix one, which featured a lot of the the actual participants and not the owners. But yeah, I think that you could blow this up. I, I guess. I like the Glow documentary. I like the footage. I like some of the discussion points, but it doesn't feel like there's a real narrative or flow to it, um, except with the Mount Fiji stuff, which I think is really good. And I think that's what kind of elevates it. And if you make the documentary longer, maybe that's something that gets lost. But I, I would have, I, I guess I would have liked to have had a sense of time and scale, uh, with, with some of this, but. I mean, again, 75 minutes, I, you, you, that, that is probably the, be, the thing that is in its favor the most. And uh, it is, it is well worth watching if you've not seen it. Uh, whether you've seen, uh, the show glow or not, that's the documentary is well worth it. And what's interesting and what I really like is that the show takes real life predicaments and stories from the women and make that the reality of the show. Like them showing up for an audition, not knowing what it is, being told it's wrestling and like half the girls immediately leave. That happens in the show, and I think there's it's fun that there's some stories like that that are taken and put into the show in and of itself, and they obviously take creative liberties with a lot of the rest of it. But if it wasn't for the documentary, we wouldn't have the show, so it deserves that credit also. The way the show was created was because you had two writers, Carly Mensch and Liz Flayhive, who saw the documentary and fell in love with it. Carly Mensch was a writer on Weeds, Nurse Jackie, Orange is the New Black – and was also a playwright, and so was Liz. She was a playwright and also wrote on Homeland, but it was Nurse Jackie where the two of them wrote on a show together. So they obviously had been on shows that explored, you know, female casts. Like Weeds had a strong female character, so did Nurse Jackie. Orange is the New Black is a pretty predominantly female cast, but this is sort of a new world, taking into the 80s, having wrestling as a backdrop. They immediately got to work on a script. And then they got in touch with Genji Cohen, who she was a television writer, just like in a writer's room person for a lot of the 90s. And then she left that world for basically trading in money for power in a way to start Weeds on Showtime. And that in and of itself became a successful show. And then she did Orange is the New Black on Netflix, where I really think she got a lot of attention. And so Carly and Liz sent her the script, asked what she thought. She apparently did not like it at first and had them – rewrite it and apparently they nailed it. She you know, she was in on the idea, but the script needed some zhuzhing and when she got it, they were they were behind it. And that got pitched to Netflix. I'm sure Orange is the New Black being a runaway success was very helpful in getting the show on there. And it was done. So Genji, Carly and Liz are sort of the three to sort of thank for being behind the show. So we could talk about, you know, whatever you want with this, Jerome, but I can say I really liked Weeds for about the first two seasons. I watched three and four, and then just sort of fell off. I think it went for like eight seasons or something. But I've That's never reasons that I haven't even started it because I heard it gets bad. And I'm like, eh, I don't really. Which need is a shame because one and two are awesome. But yeah, I can't. If if 25 percent of the show is really good, I mean, what does that say, right? And then you know, I I have not seen Orange Is the New Black. Uh, I that sounds like a show you would have seen though. That's another show that I think had a really good first couple seasons, and then kind of petered out. I think I appreciated like what it was trying to do more than the show itself, if that makes sense. And Mm -hmm. I think it did some really interesting and positive things, but I think just like with a lot of her shows, they, they kind of run out of steam after the first couple seasons. And I think weeds specifically, I mean, weeds is a great four or five season concept. There's no reason these showtime shows need to go as long as they do. I think Homeland has a lot of the same problems, 
the first season of Homeland is incredible and then it gets progressively worse. So I think one of the things about Glow that's so good is that to me and coming into this, season three is my favorite. So I am very curious to see if I'm going to feel the same. And that's why I was so looking forward to a season four to kind of cap off this four season journey, I think would have been perfect. So I think that, that they did a really great job of representing the world of wrestling. Certainly, I don't, I don't think it's perfect, but I don't think it needs to be for the audience that they're, uh, that they're trying to serve. And yeah, it's just this, this show was almost greenlit in a, in a completely different world. I don't know what this looks like now. Does it get greenlit or does WWE have to have involvement in it now? Like there's just, it's, 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 it's a very special show for a lot of reasons. And I mean, we're almost lucky we got the three seasons that we did given the current environment. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, this is, this feels like a time and place where Netflix was really spending a lot of money on shows and movies. And uh, like, you know, the Irishman got made, I think a year later. So they were really cool about spending money and making shows happen. And now very much not the case unless you're a stranger's things. Who's to say it could have been done at that point without involvement for anyone else? The other great thing I think that makes this show work and a lot of the ways you hear the cast talk about this is everyone is kind of growing together. Carly, Liz, and Genji were on board with the concept, but none of the three of them were wrestling fans. Everybody on the cast minus one person were not wrestlers. They're all actors, so they didn't know anything about wrestling. So everybody's sort of learning and growing together and and getting deep into this world, and I think that is a success of the show too. And you have this scenario that's really rare where it is a 14-woman cast. There's a couple male characters, but it is incredibly female-centric. And when you hear them talk about this, I listened to Betty Gilpin and Allison Brie talk about this, and they said it was a case of like when you go on a set – you with with other you know men in roles you don't necessarily feel uncomfortable or a certain way but when you're on a cast where it's mostly women there's a lot of stress that comes off your shoulders you don't realize is there there's like a self-awareness that isn't present all these things that come into place and and betty kilvin's quote that i pulled from it she said i've never worn less clothes and felt more empowered which i think is awesome i mean how many how many actresses really get to experience a casting thing like this especially in you know, streaming television. And then, you know, the, the the flip side of this is she also talks about how one of the days where they were filming with one of the male wrestlers who she chooses not to name was, you know, that that, that was an experience where she was very aware of her body in those moments. So uh, men ruin everything is what I, I think is um, I'm boiling this all down to. I mean, there's a couple wrestlers who I don't really want to talk about, but let's just say there's a couple of wrestlers who uh, are proven sex pests and, uh, have deservedly taken a major career hit, uh, that is well, that, that is well earned. Um, and that's, that's really all I want to say about it. I just want to, you know, I think that Betty Kill, Betty Gilpin is someone I had never seen before. And I was watching even the pilot and I'm like, how is this person not a bigger star? Like that's the, that's the big takeaway. I think there's a lot, a lot of the women are really great. But specifically, I mean, Betty Gilpin just really stands out. And, like, she's gotten – she did The Hunt. She's done a couple things since this. But, man, I just feel like she should be a bigger star than she is. And even in watching this, 
like it's almost meta in the way that he should actually be a bigger star but isn't. Yeah, and she had two seasons on Nurse Jackie before Glow, so I have to imagine that's where she got plucked from. Uh since all the since the two writers were involved in that show. Something else that they mentioned was that you know, the show comes out in the summer of 2017, but it's filmed in 2016 and Donald Trump gets elected during this. And I mentioned this uh because Carly and Liz, they said when they were talking about the show, they were like, you know, this is such a great time for the show. By the time it comes out, our first woman president's going to be in office. There was just the, for a lot of people this expectation that like there's no way we're going to elect Donald Trump into office. And they said once he did, there were some pretty rough days on set uh, with that. So it's interesting you have this very female empowered show and then this this president that is so the antithesis of a lot of things that the show sort of celebrates and contributes uh, gets elected into office. Not a good time, Jerome. Pretty, pretty dark times. Pretty, pretty dark times. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot that I uh, could say, but I, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna re- come, come down to this that I think that we, we all have a lot, we all had a lot to learn at that time and probably still do about uh, the realities uh, of our system. And I even think that this show had a lot to learn in terms of um, representation and some of those issues and we will probably get into those, but you know, I think it's, it's, it's quite a time. Again, this, this show is such a fascinating time capsule because it starts with kind of being, uh, being filmed during Trump's election and then essentially gets canceled because of the pandemic. Like this, and you know, at the beginning, you know, Netflix was like this big streamer that was just greenlining everything, giving everybody opportunities. And then by 2020, like it's the start of them starting to just kind of cancel everything. So this show is really a perfect time capsule for streaming television, even down to like the eighties, the eighties aesthetic, like the eighties aesthetic is something that, you know, almost was perfected in this era. You look at the Americans, you look at stranger things, you look at so many other shows that I could name that really go for that eighties aesthetic. And this is a, this is a big one. Yes. Very true to the eighties throughout the show. And I think that's it. They feel like you take a lot of people make that choice to do a lot of shows out of time for logistical reasons. And I think just, you know, the eighties were another time for where, where women were in certain places in the world of acting and all this. And this is, you know, it, it is part of why glow was created. And I like seeing that through that lens too, in the show. The last thing I'll mention about behind the scenes for getting into the show itself was that in the original Glow, as mentioned in the documentary, Mondo Guerrero was the trainer for the women. Again, basically a whole cast of women who were all actresses who had never uh, never wrestled, knew nothing about wrestling, and Mondo Guerrero was there to teach them the basics. He's part of this. The Guerrero family is well-known in, in pro wrestling, uh, and his brother Chavo Guerrero Sr. had a son, Chavo Guerrero Jr., and he was the one who was hired to train the women for the Netflix show. So I thought that was a really cool branch that Mondo Guerrero, his nephew trained for the glow uh, actresses and his interview is really interesting too. Cause he talks about how he was, he heard about the show and was trying to get on it and didn't hear anything back. And then he gets a call from Eve Torres, who was friends with the stunt woman who got casted for glow and she recommended Chavo. So he's like, 
you got to be kidding me. Like that's, it's, it's fate that he was trying to get on, get on the show, heard nothing. And then a connection gets him there. But he also talks about how really square one it was with a lot of these women. Like he tells a story where he's training women to do things. And then he's like, wait a second. Do any of you know how to win a wrestling match? Like, no. And he's like, okay, we really got to start from the basics here. But he had such positive things to say about the whole experience and doing everything and how he didn't say these words, but he, it sounded like he basically became a producer for the role without the title, where there's a lot of like, hey, we have these words used in the script. Is this the right word to use? Is this the right language? Where should we place the ring in the in the boxing gym? A lot of these sort of things that just if you're not in the world, you wouldn't think of. So I think it's really cool that he was involved with the show when you know his his uncle was. And you see the boxing gym is named Chavo's gym in the show. So that's a nice uh, nod to him. And it wouldn't be the the last nod to a wrestler they had. Uh, present on the show so i thought that was a fun little fact i think mondo guerrero did a great job in his time just from even seeing the clips like he i think and and a lot of a lot of the credit undoubtedly goes to the women as well and i think chavo guerrero does a very good job and again the women in the show i think do a good job and when when it's the stunt people i can't i can't tell the difference so i think that's right. the mark of doing a really good job but can you imagine if eddie guerrero was alive and was doing the training <laughs> unbelievable you'd have I mean, like he would pro- they would probably have coming to out of the show like he would probably they would probably be like you know what let's just make the show about him yeah and it would right. be the rare time it would be the rare time when you make a show intended for women about a man and you're like you know what i could see it yeah, and the woman I think would be like, yeah, we get it. You know what? We're just going to go. Uh, but and, and worth saying, too, that on the interviews, everyone spoke very highly of Chavo and his training and, and how kind he was and how patient he was and how well he did with them. So all that is uh, positive stuff. But let's get into the show itself. It premiered as a as an episode dump. All 10 episodes were dropped on Netflix on June 23rd, 2017. This is an ensemble cast, but I really think season one focuses on the – you know, three specific people who the show's about. The first is the character Ruth Wilder, who's played by Alison Brie. She's a struggling actress and she really just can't land a role. There's, you really get to see the landscape of where women are in acting. Uh, you know, there's, there's, they have roles as secretaries or wives and that's really about it. That's the, that's the picture we're getting painted with her. She's talked to about a casting director about, well, you know, there's, there's some alternative auditions if you're, if, if that's something of interest and we see she is dirt poor. So she really doesn't have a lot of, a, a lot of wiggle room in what she can and can't accept, which is very important to her getting to glow. And again, we talk about the parallels for there's no prominent roles for women in wrestling. Well, not so much in Hollywood either, as we see with her. Now, one of her best friends, Debbie Egan, played by Betty Gilpin, she's a retired soap opera actress and is now a mother. What happens, though, is that we learn that Ruth is sleeping with this guy named Randy who's sneaking to her apartment, and we're like, that's weird. Why is that happening? Well, it turns out that is Debbie's husband. This comes to be important when the director of GLOW, Sam Sylvia, played by Mark Maron, he was the one who was put into this role. He's a B-movie director, and at practice one day, Debbie storms in to confront Ruth about uh, sleeping with her husband. He has this vision in his head. It's one of my favorite scenes from the show of the two of them all glammed up wrestling in the ring as Journey plays in the background, and he sees something in them and eventually convinces Debbie to join Glow. So a quote that that Allison Brie had about it was that Ruth, Debbie, and Sam needed – at the same time all needed some sort of escape from their lives, and they all happened to find Glow at the same time. So these are really your three people who are going to be centered around the focus of the show with the rest of the women sort of being – 
you know, each of them kind of get more featured than than not on other specific episodes, but these are your three tentpoles for sure. For sure, and it's Allison Brie has had a remarkable television career that really hasn't translated to nearly as good of a movie career. But you just look at her credits. I mean, prominently featured in Community, uh, kind of a more of a guest starring role, but still a part of Mad Men, uh, doing voiceover work for BoJack Horseman, another Netflix show. So, I mean, she is somebody who is is as important to the history of this prestige slash PTV era as anyone else. And I, I think she is she is very good kind of in her lane. But I think the issue for me always is her characters. And again, I want to emphasize that I like Alison Brie in this role for the most part, and I like what she does. But she always is playing the type of character that would remind the teacher to collect the homework if the teacher forgets. And that that's the best descriptor I can use because she is the classic teacher's pet, the classic suck-up. And again, she does this really well. But you definitely can find you, – you definitely will see the pattern. I guess I should have, have mentioned this before, but now that we're talking about them, it's a show about wrestling. It has Genji Cohen involved. And again, I liked Weeds enough. Uh, I loved Community and Allison Breeze on the show, and I'm a fan of the WTF podcast and Mark Maron's on here. And I was like, you don't need anything else. Like I'm, I'm in, guys. You don't, I know you're making a show specifically for me, and that's cool, but you can stop putting all these wonderful things into this, this show for me. So – that's our three that we're going to move forward with, but there's at least in the few episodes, there's a, some other characters that get some, some bigger focus. So Seidel Noel plays Cherry Bang. She's, the, she's a, a black woman who's worked with Sam in the past, apparently. They talk about a miscarriage she has, which comes into play in the early episodes, but she ends up being deputized as a co-trainer by Sam and she becomes more of an enforcer in episode four forward as well. And we also see that she's one of the few people on the show who is married, and she's married to a gentleman named Keith Bang, played by Bashir Salahuddin, who ends up being a referee on the show. Cherry is somebody who I really like anytime she's on screen. I feel like her role gets diminished as the show goes on, but I really liked her, and I really liked her husband as well, and that that dynamic that they played. Uh, I, well, the only complaint I have is there wasn't just a little bit more of her in the show. I think that the, she specifically deserved uh, a, a little bit more time just because – you know, you start out with this idea of her having a miscarriage and that's played prominently and then you kind of reduce her role. And again, I think when we talk about like some of the issues and some of the like the misses, like so they assume that Hillary Clinton would be the president and that's a blind spot. And I think this in terms of we have this great black character who's a trainer, who's athletic who's very charismatic as a performer, both within the context of the show and just as an actor, like, I think this is, this is a blind spot for the show as well. And they have a great, like, I love their relationship. I think it's really great that you, you don't see a lot of black couples on TV that are happy. Like, you just don't see that. And the fact that they're into each other and, and like, constantly seemingly always having sex. Like I, again, I think those are positive things. Sidel Noel is really good. I think she is a little bit underserved, but like you said, anytime she's on screen, it is a, it's a pleasure. She's great. Someone else who I really liked in this was Brittany Young, who plays the role of Carmen Wade. I love the reveal in episode one where they're training and she reveals that she is uh, the daughter of Goliath Jackson, who in this world is this giant wrestling star and part of this wrestling dynasty who 
She has her two brothers who are also wrestlers. Because of this, she gets deputized as a co-trainer by Sam. But then we find out in episode four that she is doing this without the knowledge of her father and brothers, and they try to yank her off of the project. Uh, so now you have that dynamic of, I want to follow in the footsteps of the family. No, you don't. You're a girl. Yada, yada. You have that with her. But Brittany Young is just one of those people who puts a smile on my face every time she's on screen. She just has that affability to her that I would say like a Willow Nightingale today has, where it's hard not to see her on the screen and not smile. That is a really good connection by you, and uh, I, I will I will second it. I think that she is exactly what you want from this character, and I think that in a show like this, when you have such an ensemble, I think you need a glue. I think having somebody, and I think whenever you get a group of individuals like this, when when you have a big ensemble, or like, and I'm not just talking about like in a movie, but even in a group of individuals. I think there's always there's going to be some people that are polarizing. There's going to be some people that get along, don't get along. But I feel like there's always one person in the group that everybody feels like they could talk to, that everybody feels like they get along with. And I feel like that is the role that uh, Carmen plays, and I think she does it uh, extremely well. And the fact that she is involved in wrestling and probably is, let's say, more knowledgeable about the politics and maybe some of the BS and is able to kind of rise above it for that reason, I think, uh, yeah, she does a great job. That's that's really all I could say. I also think Jackie Tan does a great job. She plays Melanie Rosen, or as she calls herself, Mel Rose. But she's like your class clown, rebel party girl. She's like kind of too cool for school, not taking it too seriously. She also just gets on people's bad side when she's not taking the training training seriously, especially Cherry, who also tries to claim that she only got the job because she fucked Sam, which we don't know if that's true or not. But obviously it's a harsh allegation to throw out about any actress. And I'm how many people in Hollywood and wrestling probably get accused of that and then makes fun of her miscarriage, which is just uh, that's a hard scene to watch. That was something that I was really. And like that, I I cringed the first time watching in this, and I I was like ready for it this time, and I was like I I I I don't know that I can. It's hard. It's hard, man. I mean, if you know people in your life who have experienced a miscarriage, I'm sure that makes it all the more difficult. And if you are a person who has experienced a miscarriage for themselves, I cannot imagine watching the scene. And I think, I think the issue is just like with Cherry, it feels like Meller's kind of. We lose a little bit of her character as we go through the season. I don't know whether it's because they kind of can't think of anything for her to do or whether their attention is is drawn elsewhere. But I think part of the issue with the streaming format is when you only have 10 episodes, it's really hard to develop these characters. I think I think this show almost would have benefited some ways by being maybe more traditional and having 22 minutes on a network or 22 minutes and 22 episodes, because I think maybe you would have get, you would have been able to uh, get more in some ways. But I think that Melrose, I, I think, again, I think she does a very good job, but it doesn't feel like the Terry Melrose thing ever pays off. And I think that's part of the issue with the miscarriage scene is that if you're going to have that scene, like you need to come back to it in some way, and they never really do in season one. I think this is something that you have to pay off in season one in some way. Yeah, you don't get the cathartic release of that that payoff. And I also think 
watching it back, I think Jackie Tom does an amazing job with the character, but I feel like they almost make her a little too despicable in these first couple episodes. And it's like, it's going to take a lot of good. I feel like there's, there's, there's a lot of, of overcorrection in some ways because, and you know, we'll get into this with the major plot line, but I feel like they're going out of their way to make the women like, I'm not going to say a Walter White equivalent, but they're like, they're going out of their way to make the women despicable as opposed to like evolving it or like having the relationships build more naturally. And I think of the show like Halt and Catch Fire. I thought of that show a lot while watching season one and the way that they're, the way that the relationships start is very different than how it evolves and they don't start out despicable, but it kind of grows. And I think that's a better way of doing it as opposed to starting from a place of, we are not only going to have a miscarriage storyline, but we're also going to have two best friends fighting because one of them uh, cheated uh, with their husband. So it's a, it's, it's a weird start. I'll say that. It's almost like a hat on a hat. Like you have this giant personal issue and then you're going to dump another one on it, and they're very women-specific problems. So Right. Like, yeah. And the irony is is that you have a show that is intended to be about women, and you have two women in a dispute over a man, and you then have two women in a dispute over a child issue. So <laughs> I don't know. I feel like there was, a, there, was a, there was a better way to go, and I don't know what that is. I don't get paid millions of dollars. I mean, actually, no writers are getting paid millions of dollars unless they're scabbing. So, yeah, I mean, again, I think that the, the show, the show gets better as it goes along because I think they get past some of that. And then the show really starts to sing, I think, in season two and three. But uh, there's, a, there's a lot of throat clearing in season one. And I think it does lead to some challenging moments. But the chemistry is there. The thing about the show is the chemistry is there right from the start with the, with the ensemble. All of the performances are either triples or home runs. And, you know, I, just looking at the cast that you, that you sent to me in the notes, like, I can't think of a single miss. And I think that, that plays as much into why I was able to enjoy the show as anything, because the cast is so, so good. A hundred percent. Yeah. Even if the writing isn't so great at some parts or like it, it takes some time catching up to its own, uh, to, to what it's trying to do. The cast takes what they can and they run with it and they do an awesome job. Someone else who does an awesome job, and I think this is our first connection to another show that we've talked about before, is we have Chris Lowell from Veronica Mars is here as Sebastian Bash Howard. I felt good seeing him again. How about you? Uh, are you discounting our secret uh, How I Met Your Father episode that's never going to see the light of day? What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> oh, I'm glad I, I popped you with that one. Uh, I, got, so- I, got, I got legit hot, like hot, like my head got hot when you said that, that show title. <laughs> Oh man, maybe someday. Well, we'll talk about it. But uh <laughs> well, all right. Well, well, so Chris plays uh Bash. His, his full name is Sebastian Howard. He is uh the heir to the Howard Foods Empire. He's a huge wrestling fan, has a ton of money because of this. Uh he's also like kind of like a wannabe playboy and he's the money mark of glow. Wait, hang on. Hold on. So Nepo baby, huge wrestling fan, money mark who starts a wrestling company. Are you still talking ro- about glow? Has a drug robot. Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, <laughs> drug problem. We're still talking about Glow, right? Uh, I don't, I don't know who you, who else you could be, be, you could be talking about. I mean, this is kind of sounding like a con job at this point. Anyways, 
him and Sam Sylvia have this classic like battle of the person who's funding the project has a different vision than what the director does. Cause Sam's laying out the, he's having these characters in the show. It's like a, it's a post-apocalyptic kind of like horny wrestling show that the women aren't really into. Bash is really bored by. And so he kind of scraps everything and he takes them all to have a party in his mansion at Malibu to sort of loosen up. And it's there with Sam where he says, you know, look, I'm in wrestling. The characters are really simple. And a lot of them play to type. And by type, he means stereotype. So what he does is he kind of has the, the girls raid his costume closet and have them sort of find themselves and kind of helps them embrace who they are. And I really like when Carmen is like, you know, oh, I'm big on, I'm opposing and I'm a, I'm a heel. I'm a bad guy. And he says, no, look at your face. You know, you're, you're a literal baby face. Like the fans are going to love you and all that. And I, and I like that he sort of helps them discover who they are and it gives them the freedom to help develop their own characters. And just like in wrestling, if it's something that you come up with, you're going to be more into it and you're able to put yourself into that character. Sam's almost ready to quit, but Ruth convinces him to stay and him and Bash sort of make a deal. If Sam stays on and agrees to do glow his way, he'll fund his next project. So that is a little bit of a hanging thread too that we get back to later. But I like this episode a lot where they go to the, to the mansion. They all sort of discover themselves and you get to kind of find out who, who, uh, who Bash is and develop that relationship with him and Sam. I think the important thing is that they're finally getting everyone together. I think that's an, another reason why the first couple episodes struggle a bit is because like, it's hard to, you're, you're building an ensemble and it's hard to build an ensemble when they're not together. So in episode three, you finally kind of get everybody together. And that's when I think the show again is, is starting to find itself. I think it gets better when they're all in the hotel together. I think Crystal, I, I think Crystal does a great job here. I have so many questions though. Like what wrestling was he watching? Like, was he a kid? Like, was he going to, uh, the Los Angeles territory? Like how, like, I just, I want to know these things. Like nobody cares. I understand that nobody else watching Glow probably cares, but I do. And I just, I have so many questions, but, uh, yeah. And why, why women's wrestling specifically, like what makes him into that so much and, I think a lot of this is because essentially Chris Lowell playing back, he is the, the David McLean kind of stand in. David McLean is of course, uh, the promoter of Glow and so many other women's wrestling organizations over the years. And especially when he goes into the announcing booth, like they are voice twins at that point. Like he's very much doing an impression of David McLean at that point. So clearly he is a stand in. Chris Lowell's great in these ensembles. I really like him. Just very solid. Again, very good casting. And yeah, he's somebody that should definitely be on better sitcoms and not on the show that I mentioned that Kev will only anger Kevin more if I mention it again. So good things for Chris Lowell. Let's hope. I think you can also tell because he has like a, I don't know what you call him, a handler, a helper or something that's male. And so like throughout the show, I feel like his sexuality is ambiguous, at least for the first season. So you're not like, all right, he's not trying to cast these women to fuck them. Unlike someone else on the show, it feels pure with Bash and his his love of wrestling and wanting to make this succeed, which I think is important. For sure. And uh, look, all I could say is that that Bash and Sam's relationship is very cliched, but I think that they make it work because, again, it comes down to the performance. Again, this show is so well cast. It's yeah. it's remarkable to me that Allison Jones was not the casting director of this. Because it's so well done. I mean, Mark Marin, like, had he done a lot of other acting before this? 
No, I not know really. That since then, like I know he's been in an episode of Reservation Dogs. He was really good in that. I know he had Marin, but I don't think he's done a lot of acting before this, and I think he's really good at it. Yeah, I mean, they pretty much talk about how they had him cast in their head for this role. And they said, like, when we were, like, writing the show, like, we heard your voice in our heads when we were doing this. But as far as, you know, acting, like, no, not really, not really a lot of anything. I think he was in, like, a deleted scene of D2, The Mighty Ducks, as, like, a ambulance driver. Famously, his podcast starts with uh, his quote from Almost Famous, where he yells, lock the gates, as a as an angry promoter. But other than that, no. I mean, Marin's really a, his his big show that comes. Uh, and then, like you said, uh, once he does Glow, then you see him. He does like uh, he was in, you know, for what you want to say about it, he's in Joker, and he gets to he gets to be a, uh, next to you know working a movie with Robert De Niro. Like I think that was his his big thing with that. You know, he he does a lot of voice acting. I don't want to say this was his big break per se. But I think this is really where he gets to show his acting chops, and that definitely, I think, probably would have helped with more work in that world. I did not know about Gail Rankin before this show. She plays Sheila the She-Wolf, and we see her a couple times in the first episodes. But episode four is where you learn that her look is a put-on. And that really isn't an issue until in episode four, Sam and Bash agree that all the women need to house together in a hotel in Van Nuys so they can – you know, grow and all these other things. And that's apparently a real thing that happened with Glow in real life. And you get to see same thing as in real life. They have a curfew. They can't do drugs. And that's when Cherry gets deputized to sort of be the person to make sure all the women are in line. And Sheila is very protective of herself because she's, she's a, she's rooming with Ruth, but she eventually opens up to Ruth in the hotel talks about how she feels spiritually connected to a wolf and how it's not like she's – because Ruth misinterprets this as her like, you know, doing method acting. But no, this is just how she is all the time. And her being able to open up to Ruth helps her be a little bit, you know, more loose in the in the upcoming episodes. Sheila's also a bit of an underserved character. I mean, I feel like I'm going to say that about a lot of women because it's a 14-person ensemble. You know, and there's only so much screen time and you got a main story to stick to. But I'm at least glad that Sheila got this episode four feature because that's definitely a character you're like, who who is this person? What is she all about? And you get some of that in episode four. Big fan of her. I think this is a very hard character to play. And she does about as good of a job with it as you can. I really like the montage that we got of her kind of putting on her work, so to speak. And I, I really like that moment. I think it's so important to kind of understand who she is in that moment. And I think it's an appropriate time for it. And yeah, I think Gail Rankin is somebody who she was also on Perry Mason and like the two characters in some ways are very, in some ways it's like very similar, but in some ways like almost unrecognizable from a physical standpoint. But uh, Gail Rankin is again also somebody that I think is really good. And I think she is able to fit into this ensemble. And I, I think that's part of it. I think that, I think that part of the reason the performances are good is because they're so cohesive together. And it's not just, okay, this person's a really good actor. Let's cast them. But you have to have people that can work together. And it feels like this could be a friendship or this could be, uh, they could be frenemies or what have you. So. I think this the part of the reason this works is because she is a part of the puzzle and she works as 
a part of the puzzle. So if she needs to see it in the background for certain scenes, I think that works. And I like the fact that she gets a job and uh, she's kind of able to do more in the last couple episodes as far as like being in charge of some of the technical aspects too. So very good stuff. Again, I, I feel like we're saying some of the same things, but I think it's, I think it's true. I, th- I just think that this is a really well cast show. Uh, but the one thing I will say is that uh, Sheila, the She-Wolf's wig is not nearly as bad as the character that you are about to talk about, except I think Sheila's is intended to be bad. And I don't think this next character's is intended to be bad, but it is. Are you talking about Justine? Oh, it's it's so bad. The wig is so bad. And I'm not – I try not to be that person who's like, that wig sucks, especially with women. Lately, when I've been podcasting with Brian, I've been pointing out toupees to Brian that's been kind of blowing his mind. Uh, but this this was just inexcusable, especially because I looked at – like I looked at her IMDb to see if she had done anything else, and there was a picture of her. And I was like, okay, they really – number one, they really dressed her down. And number two, the wig sucks, man. Like I just – I almost can't get over it. <laughs> She's good, but the the wig is bad. The thing I always think of with bad wigs is uh, the DC show Legends of Tomorrow. Holy crap! You know what? But those shows are done so cheaply. Like I can almost like yes, they are bad. I'm not going to deny that. And if that is a huge bugaboo for you, then I get it. But it just feels like in this show where they have a drug robot, like they go to lengths to establish a drug robot and the aesthetics of the hotel are so good and the wrestling gym is perfect. Like even the clothing, like I think about uh, the dress that Allison Brie wears when they go to the fundraiser, like they just are so good at that kind of thing. That's why this wig stands out because everything, like almost everything else is so good that when you don't do something as good, like it kind of stands out. That that's definitely fair. Britt Barron plays Justine, who is 17 years old, and she's a Sam Sylvia super fan talking about all his movies and all these things she likes, and obviously that that endears her to Sam because it kind of feels like she's – there's nothing really remarkable about her. I actually think the scenes where she's scab is really – she does a really good job with that, kind of doing like a little bit over-the-top-ishness. But I really feel like when Sam is making cuts and getting the roster down to its size – it to me it feels like they don't ever explicitly state this, but it feels like she's somebody who could have been on the chopping block if she hadn't endeared herself to Sam as a super fan. I think that's a that's a very fair assessment. And her her interactions with the pizza boy are very cute. <laughs> so good. Uh and it gives her roommate a little bit of time too, and I like their interactions and it very it seems like the very classic like seventeen year old girl obsessing over a guy and over worrying about it. Uh, and then I also like what she finds out. She thinks Sam Sylvia is a hack that she kind of calls it off. They end up back together, but I think that's, that's, that's very fun. And we find out why Sam means so much to her a little bit later on. But we got to get into Andrew Friedman, somebody who I feel like is in every show of all time. It still doesn't have a Wikipedia page, which is crazy. Andrew Friedman plays the same character in every show, but he does a great job with that character. I wonder what it's like to be Andrew Friedman. Like, you know what roles you're going in for. You probably have like 17,000 suits and it's like, what decade, what era, am I sleazy or not? Like, it just feels like you're right. But I think that he adds a lot of flavor and like nothing he does. It's not like, oh, this Andrew Friedman performance is so great, but it just fits in so well. And I think that's what you need uh, on TV, especially like, I think that's why these character actors are able to find the careers that they do because they're able to fit into these shows so well and they're able to do this 
over and over again. And I don't know, maybe it sucks. Maybe they get to do theater work and like they get to kind of expand their repertoire. But I mean, I just think you, you need these, you need these guys and girls to be in these movies and shows because not everybody is a star and that's okay. And I think he does, uh, he gets a couple good chuckles, but he's kind of, you know, not a prominent part. And I think he just, again, he fits in well. Oh, 100%. I'm not taking anything away from him. You know, being being a, a character actor isn't necessarily the worst thing. If you get steady work, you get to do a lot of different things. And as the as the TV executive who gets in their TV role, he does great. And he finds them. We just uh, we just need to pay them, right? Just pay them their fair wages. Pay them their fucking fair wages. Uh, you know, they could have been getting paid for us watching Glow on Netflix, but uh, that's not going to happen. He has this he has this potential sponsor patio town that he brings. Uh, Ruth and one of the other characters too, and it's not going so well until Ruth, who's been really having trouble finding what her character is, puts on this Russian character, and it, it's a huge hit with the Patio Town audience, and it gets them on board to be a sponsor. But the problem is, is that uh, Debbie has found the role of Liberty Bell, the American character, and she is not willing to work with Ruth at this time, and so. If Ruth is going to be the Russian, you put them against each other, but that seems to be a non-starter. So that's something they're going to have to overcome. And Debbie, in the meantime, is having a tough time improving, getting the hang of things where Ruth is really thriving. And one of the reasons she's been thriving is because she's been working with Carmen. And so Debbie wants to work with Carmen to try to get better. And Carmen says, you know, I think one of the reasons you're not getting it is because you think wrestling is stupid and it's really preventing you from improving. So, hey – why don't I take you to an actual wrestling show so you can see what it's all about? And Melrose comes with them too. And Jerome, they take them to a place that you've been before, the famous American Legion Hall in Reseda, California. May it rest in peace. But tell me about – I've never been to this building. There's few things, Jerome, that of you that I can be jealous about, but this is definitely one of them that I never got a chance to see before it's demolished. So one of the reasons that the Reseda Legion Hall is so prominent is because it is featured – uh, it was run by Pro Wrestling Guerrilla, uh, a company based out of Los Angeles. And essentially they, they both reinvented themselves into becoming one of the most prominent independent companies. And I think it is a direct predecessor to AEW in a lot of ways for better and for worse. But I don't, there would, I don't think there would be an AEW without PWG. And I think no, some people, would make the argument about Ring of Honor, but I think PWG, just in terms of, like, the announcer, some of the wrestlers, like, those are the people who are kind of directly responsible, so I always consider that to be a direct predecessor. And I think it's kind of fitting in a lot of ways that that this building gets featured. I'm sure there, there had to be a wrestling fan that had to have some awareness, because one of the things about PWG is that a lot of famous people were starting to go to attend the shows. I know Sofia Vergara was one, was one, Clark Duke, Max Landis, boo. But like a lot of famous actors and screenwriters and things of that nature, they were going to PWG shows. So, uh, this is a, it's a legendary venue, but what you have to understand about this legendary venue is it is both very, it's as small as it looks on TV. It is even smaller in person and it is just, a hole in the wall. Like you could very easily miss it. And it's uh it's an incredible place. Like I got to go twice 
once in 2012 and once in 2014. And 2014, I went for an entire weekend and saw three shows. And it's, 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 I'm really glad that I got to experience that specific venue at that specific time. And I've gotten to experience like some other really cool independent wrestling venues. And that might be my favorite just because like, just the way that you experience wrestling there is very different. And again, I think having it be a part of glow, I think it's a really cool thing as well. And also want to point out that this, uh, this Legion hall was a prominent, was prominently featured in an episode of Mad Men as well. But on a final note, it's just funny to me that this venue in Rosita has become like so famous and so important because again, I want to emphasize just how small and kind of a piece of shit it is. So it's just funny how that works out and how it's been a part of all these movies and shows as well. Because Rosita, California, not this venue, but Rosita, California is also the site of the Karate Kid movies and the uh, Netflix show Cobra Kai. So it really all does come together. But yeah, those are, those are, those are my thoughts and feelings. A, a venue that I would love to go back to, but sadly cannot, but leave the memories alone, Kevin. Leave the memories alone. Would you say it deserves its reputation for being a sweat box? Uh, absolutely. God damn. I mean, I remember night two or night three of Bola literally running out of the venue across the street. I think it was either a CVS or Walgreens and getting water. And I was not the only person to do that. So yeah, it's, uh, it definitely deserves the reputation. I don't know. I, in some ways, you know, I went in, I went to the ECW arena in the summer of 2011 when it was like 95 degrees. And I think that might have actually been in some ways worse, but, uh, this, uh, this wasn't great either, but, uh, very, very worth it. Like, I'm really, again, I'm really glad that I went. And I think Debbie is able to embrace wrestling because she, like, makes the connection with soap operas. Like, flat out, yes. that is the reason why that she is able to embrace this and be like, oh, this is just like a male or, you know, in her case, like, uh, uh, a different version of a soap opera. And I don't know how much do we want to talk about the wrestlers that are involved in what she's seeing? Well, I'll talk about one of them. So, cause, uh, Alex Riley, who's played by Kevin Kiley, whose dad was actually a very famous sportscaster in the Washington DC area where I grew up. He is the, the protagonist steel horse in the show. And when Carmen's explaining that, Oh, there's actual stories to these matches of what's going on between him and his opponent and his valet. That's when it clicks in her head. Like, Oh my God, this is a soap opera. She was a soap opera actress. She knows how to do this. And she very much gets into the match. And that's where the connection is made. And she meets steel horse who explains, you know, every good face needs a good heel. And she's going to be a face as the American thing, but also that the guy she, he was wrestling, they didn't have the best relationship in real life, but you don't need to be friends to be to wrestle each other. You just have to be professional. Hey, what good timing, huh? And so that's when Debbie tells Sam that she's officially in, but he needs to find her a great heel to, to be programmed against. So that's when everything sort of comes together. Is there anything you want to say about Alex Riley or anything else? Uh, everybody needs to stop listening to this podcast and go listen to his, uh, theme song on YouTube. Just the first, <laughs> first 10 seconds. I, I requested that Kevin make it the opening of this show. I don't think it will be, but it's just, it's, it's so funny. It's so funny. I will say Alex Riley acting in this show is actually better than his acting in WWE. That's no doubt about take. it. Uh, and, I think that's a pretty cold take to be honest with you. Uh, and John, because everybody else is kind of, kind of bad. John Morrison, not great. 
uh, some of the other people who are canceled that I want to talk about, and uh, they're not great. But Alex Riley, like, it actually feels like he's an actor and not wrestler playing actor. I think that's that's the difference. Except John Morrison has the best character name in the whole show. He does, and I will let you say what it is. Salty the Sack Johnson. <laughs> if, if anybody's familiar with Chuck Taylor's appearances on the Art of Wrestling podcast and he has a – uh, his his notes app and his phone is is filled with fake wrestling names. It sounds like it would be on that list. Uh, for sure. And, you know, I think the evolution of Debbie and Ruth's relationship, that is really at the, uh, at the heart of this show. And, again, I think Betty Gilpin does a really good job of – it would be really easy to write Debbie as just very sympathetic and like the – like she's this perfect person, but – like, she's kind of bad at times, yes. and I think it's very admirable that the show is willing to go there with her, and again, I come back to Halt and Catch Fire. Like, there's a point in Halt and Catch Fire when you are 100% on one person's side, and then there's a very specific moment, and I'm trying to be vague for a reason, because people should watch Halt and Catch Fire, and I don't want to spoil it here. If you haven't watched it, go listen to our podcast on it. Uh, where you're doing like a 180 and you're actually caring for the other person. And I feel like they're going for the same vibe here. Like there are times when you are meant to be rooting against Debbie because her behavior is just so abhorrent. Like she's crossing the line. Well, and I also think like, you know, the next episode, it takes the whole episode, but Sam finally convinces Debbie that Ruth is the right pick to be her main event heel because she's so good at her Russian character. She's picked up all the wrestling and all these things, even if Debbie doesn't like her. And I think the interaction with Steel Horse helped her get there. But I do like that she's like, no, I won't do it. She fucked my husband. And Sam's eventually like, so fucking what? Get over it. Like, how long are you going to pine over this? If you know, if you can make money and you can have a good match against her, then who gives a shit? And I was like, amen, dude. Like, there's eventually a time where, like, she's treating Ruth like dirt. I'm not saying they got to be best friends or anything, but it seems like her cold shoulder gets a little bit out of control in, at some part, parts of this. And you have to be like, yeah, well, you know, and and then when you have the the she has the conversation with her husband later, and you realize, okay, yes, obviously, her husband sleeping with Ruth was a bad thing, but Debbie's not exactly innocent in the whole situation either. So I like all this. I like that Sam says that to Debbie, and I like that eventually you just have to tell people who are what was me or angry about something to just like move on. Uh, so that was at least my take of it. Maybe it's, that's not it's, the most. It's very reminiscent of Holt McElhaney in Mindhunter when he tells, when he tells Holden to buck up, so to speak. And I yes. think that Sam is serving a, a very similar role here. And I think it goes back to the moment, like what he envisions what the two of them wrestling would be like. And I think it's, uh, it's pretty great. What if Kevin, what if Carrie Russell had played the Allison Brie role instead and she had to play a fake Russian? How, uh, a little too meta? <laughs> little too meta, I think. I do have a question though before we leave the American Legion Hall for the rest of the show. Debbie, she's not really feeling the show, you know, in the main event, but so she gets it, she goes and gets some tequila. Debbie Egan, as drunk, more drunk or less drunk than the other patrons you saw when you were there at the American Legion Hall? Uh, much less drunk. I, I definitely really? saw some drunk ass people, <laughs> especially on the, on the, especially on the Saturday show, I would say of the most. If weren't they, were they selling whole pitchers of beer for like $7? They were $7. selling whole pitchers of beer, but people are sweating it out. I mean, right. everybody's just so tired at, at a certain point. Like, I feel like I, I feel like the drunkest, and maybe this has to do with being in Philadelphia, I feel like those <laughs> were the worst. 
Okay. Just in terms of behavior. I mean, there's, there's literally, I, I, there's the most racist sign that I've ever seen in Philadelphia. And Kevin knows exactly. I'm not going to say what it it's, is, but that show was the, well, that show and after, after the show is the second most drunk I've ever been in my life. So, <laughs> uh, Kevin uh, had the honor and I say honor because it really is an honor to puke outside the ECW arena. Like that yeah. is, that is, that is something that is not to be, you're not to, it's not a negative. It's actually a positive thing. No doubt about it. That's a, that's exactly how I feel about it. It's a little half baked, I guess, that Ruth ends up going to like a family event with the Russian owner of the hotel to sort of hone her character. What did you make of that? I mean, I don't know. I don't, it's, it's, it's kind of weird, but I don't, I don't really have a hot take. I wish I, I wish I had a hotter take on this, but I don't. It's just feel it's a little too unrealistic. We're like, all right, uh, she's got to have something to do for this episode. I guess this is fine. It's funny, but it just feels like would this would this actually happen? I don't know. It's I guess it's a TV show, and I should just shut up and go with it. Yeah, but I think especially when you're binging a show, I think you notice those things more than if you if you watch this like once a week. I don't think you would pick that out. But it's a fair critique because Netflix releases these shows. All at once. So the intention is for you to watch them all at once. So you open yourself up to those critiques. Yes. Uh, and then in episode seven, it's when Debbie decides like, ah, we need something a little more flashy because, you know, everyone's getting trained the same way. They're all kind of doing the same stuff. It's all very basic. And she wants to add something, especially if her and Ruth are going to be the main event of this. So she uh, has Carmen get her brothers to train them separately. Less said about that, the better. Uh, and this is when they have their first show in the gym. And there's a moment where Carmen comes out. She's Machu Picchu, which I think is the most direct. If you're watching the documentary and seeing like, oh, these characters kind of match up. Like, yeah, there's some similarities with other characters, but I think the most direct is you have Mount Fiji and Glow. She's Machu Picchu here. She's got a panic attack and Bash helps talk to her about it. And this reveals when he's been cut off monetarily by his mother. So now you've got the money issue thing going into the the last few episodes too. And, you know, funding threatens all projects. That's the case here with uh, the – Glow in the show, glow in real life. It's getting like it, it didn't get renewed at the time. So I think that's also very interesting. When the show is airing, we don't know if it's getting renewed. So there's an interesting parallel with that as well. With I mean, there's a lot of parallels to which again we'll get to in season three, but there are definitely a lot of a lot of those parallels. And uh, uh, episode seven has a really sweet montage, and I'm a big fan of the montage as we've talked about so much. And again, so much of this is because we've been watching Better Call Saul. We watch Mindhunter. So we've kind of been living in this world of great montages. This is kind of a classic 80s. You've got a Stan. Did you realize that was a Stan Bush song, Kevin? Oh, of course. Uh, you got the great Stan Bush, song, Stan Bush song going. It's a really nifty montage that, uh, you know, shows them and, and developing and, like you're, you know, it's going to pay off, and then it doesn't. And it's like, when is this going to pay off? And then, of course, they do it in episode ten. But I am a huge fan of this montage. It just, again, bringing Ruth and Debbie back together. Just uh, but good stuff. Good stuff all around in this episode. This episode seven is probably my favorite of the uh, of the season. It's a good one, and I think. You know, this is really a good time because you get to see a lot of like the characters of those people take to kind of talk about the rest of the cast a little bit. I think the, our, our top two that have the most depth to them is Rhonda, who's played by Kate Nash, who is a singer. She was an aspiring actress who like couldn't get into any of the schools in Britain. So she went into music and now she gets to act here. She's 
playing the role of the hot nerd Britannica and she's sleeping with Sam Sylvia and very open about it, uh, which is an interesting choice. Sam doesn't seem to like it. It is what it is. And they eventually break up. Kate Nash is so awesome in the show that you're surprised to hear that actressing is not her first vocation. Yeah, it's really surprising. Again, I think she fits in so, so well in this show. And I think she in some ways has the hardest role to play because she is sleeping with Sam. So I think that's going to create immediate conflict. And I think she is also towing the line between like playing the, the quote unquote hot and also playing the quote unquote nerd. So she's really having to play a sex pot, a beautiful woman and somebody who's super intelligent. And I think she kind of nails all three parts of those really well. Like, I think she comes across really well-spoken and really – like, she does come off like she's actually the hot nerd, and I think that's really hard to do. And, yeah, I think Kate Nash, again, is uh, is very good. But I have to say that the next person that we're going to talk about, what I would say is if she was more conventionally attractive, she would have been the lead of the show. I firmly believe that. No doubt about it. Kia Stevens, she plays Tamay Dawson. She is the one real wrestler on the cast. Uh, she, for many years, wrestled as Amazing Kong in Japan, where women's wrestling gets its, uh, you know, a lot more respect, especially in the 90s than in America. So that's where a lot of American women found full-time work. But in 2007, she is hired by the eye named TNA Wrestling, today known as Impact Wrestling. It stands for Total Nonstop Action. So it's not this tits and ass wrestling promotion with all women, but they, meaning TNA, put the spotlight on Kia Stevens, who is the, called Awesome Kong there, and Gail Kim in main event roles. And sort of famously, the episode of their television where they were the main event got one of the highest ratings that show ever did. And they were really the first North American company with television to really embrace women's wrestling. And it sort of became – cornerstone wouldn't be the right word, but I'd say it's like the they're, the thing they wouldn't be known for is the alternative is like, hey, they're the one American wrestling company on TV who actually treats the women with respect and gives them the light when WWE at the time was very much not doing that. And a lot of that I think is due in part to Kia Stevens and her role there. So for her to be and cast is, on the show and is that a is still thing. true to this day. Women are very prominently featured. They very often main event impact show. So this yes. isn't just like a flash in the pan. This is something that impact wrestling, I would say with the exception of the, the TNH era, like they have always done a really good job. And I, there's a lot of things I could critique impact for. I'm not going to do that, but as in terms of what they've done, well, they've always done the women a lot of justice more so than I would say WWE ring of honor, AEW, any of the other prominent, primarily men's organizations. And uh, Kia Stevens is so great. I She gets a lot more to do in season three, and I'm really happy to – we'll talk more about it there. But Kia Stevens is probably my favorite part of the show. I think her performance is so good. I, you know, I think she's a good wrestler. I think she is a natural actor just in terms of the facial expressions, the way that she reacts to things. Like – it's a shame she doesn't get more to do because like she has a mom who has a son going to Stanford. Like there is a whole story around her that we don't get to know because we don't get to see like, was she a single mom? How did she get her son? 
to Stanford? What is the road that she had to take? Because you 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 look at Kia Stevens and you look at Tammy specifically, you figure she's about 30-ish years old, would you say? Because she's a little bit older than I think some of the others. Would you say 30, maybe even 40 is a good number? So as of today, she is 46 years old. So she's late 30s when the show is filming. Okay, and plus she has a son in college, so she has to be – you figure she has him maybe around 17, 18 years old. So if this show's taking place in the 80s, like she's living through the civil rights at civil rights movement, like living in Los Angeles, there's the Watts riots. So there's there's a lot there, and again, you can only imagine what she's gone through, but Kia Stevens plays it so well. I think she is – she's so great. I can't yeah. about her. She's, I mean, she's fantastic. What's great about her is you could tell like her real life personality and who she plays in the show are so opposite of the imposing physical dominant force she was, uh, elsewhere and like her actual wrestling career. So it's really amazing. It makes you appreciate that character more when you see who she is here. And what I really like about her in the show is one, she's one of the first to develop her character of the welfare queen and just kill it in that role. But in real life, her mother was an actress and a contestant coordinator for Family Feud. So in the show, when they help her, she they make her a contestant coordinator for Family Feud as one of her roles in real life. And that comes into play when she helps get an audience for the Glow premiere. But one thing she she said that I really liked was that when uh, they have the auditions in the show and, the, and she presents her headshot to Sam – all of the credits on the back of her headshot are at her mother's actual credits. And they said that she was surprised by the writers with that. And I thought that was such a really sweet, nice thing for them to do for her is, is make her character a tribute to her mom who has passed uh, in her role. It's, it's just such a small thing, but I'm sure that goes a long way for Kia Stevens. And I think that's really fantastic. Yeah. So there's two more things that I want to say. Number one, I think it's really obvious that maybe they didn't realize what they had at first. Yes. But the fact that she ends the season as the champion, I think really it shows that they figured it out. Like they realized what they had in her and Kia Stevens will always have my admiration for beating the shit out of Bubba the Love Sponge. So <laughs> yes. if, even if, if, if nothing else, even if Kia Stevens did not do this show, Regardless, the greatest thing he ever did was beat the shit out of that guy because fuck him. 100%. And then, you know, we have the rest of the characters who get some stuff to do, but not really. You've got Marina Palka playing like a Viking. Her biggest attribute here, she's the original Liberty Bell. She's an actual athlete with medals, and then Debbie steals it away from her, which, again, probably that's something that's happened in Hollywood is the more conventionally attractive women can just take your role when she comes in. You've got Sunita Mani playing, you know, a, a Beirut, a mad bomber. You've got the Asian girl, Jenny Che, playing fortune cookie. Uh, and then you have these twin you know, friends who are attached at the hip playing this tag team role of the beatdown biddies. They're also very much a tribute act to the original glow with two women who played these older women characters. They're phenomenal. I think the real moment of controversy in this episode for the audience watching there is Cherry Bomb takes matters into her own hands with her and Welfare Queen and has them play KKK members. And that really makes them go, holy shit, with the audience there. But that's, uh, obviously was, was a huge, uh, you know, risk for them to take and it pays off very well and the audience is first shocked, but very much into it. That's sort of the kind of your rest of the characters. They don't get a ton of screen time or a ton to do in this season, but that's the rest of the glow cast. For sure. And I think, you know, and, Again, I think that they do a good job playing the roles that they do, and it's just unfortunate that 
we're trying to say, okay, these are stereotypes, underline the word stereotypes, but then they have Jenny being the seamstress of the group. And it's like, so on the one hand, you're saying we're not going to have stereotypes, but then you have the Asian character as the, the person putting the clothing together. I mean, you're, it's just, it's tough, man. It's really tough. And I think when you have an ensemble like this, again, it's really difficult, but I just think that sometimes uh, the show has some blind spots that I think are worth pointing out, even if we still enjoy the show. I, but uh, conversely, you mentioned that it's great that Gail, she finds herself, she's a, she gets to do the sound and the audio and stuff, and she really embraces and thrives in that role. So that's nice. I will say, and in terms of uh, <laughs> the Beantown Biddies, when I saw them smoking pot in – so I watched the show, and I haven't watched a documentary in a while. So I watched the show, and I see them smoking a lot of pot. And then I watched the documentary and saw them together. I was like, okay, yeah, they definitely – they probably smoked a lot of pot even before doing <laughs> this interview. So that is, uh, that is a very, very well-done job by them uh, in terms of the – like – it's very clear that they exist and this is fine. Like there's nothing wrong with it. You have so many characters. Like they're just there. If we need a gag, if we need something to laugh at, like that's what they're there for. And that's fine. Like God bless. I think comedies could use more of that. It's fine. It's, it's, it's funny stuff. I think they don't get a lot to do, but when they're there, they're always good for a laugh. hundred percent. Yeah. They're good. They're just good comedy relief. And again, not everybody in ensemble can be the top person, right? So you you need all these different characters and roles and all that, and they and they really do well with what they're given. Episode eight is pretty dramatic. It's it's sort of a sad one, and no, the saddest thing is not that a member of the Hogan wrestling family shows up on the show. Uh, surprisingly enough, so Sam and Ruth find their venue. It's like this Aztec themed nightclub, and they still don't know about the money woes of Bash just yet. But in this episode, Sam and Rhonda break up. Uh, at the end of episode seven, Randy comes to the gym and presents Debbie with divorce papers, and we find out in episode eight it was just a dramatic gesture so they could talk to each other, and we find out that Debbie's neglect of her husband maybe has a role to play with him going to find love elsewhere with Ruth, and then Ruth herself finds out she is pregnant from cheating on uh, with uh, with Randy, and she goes uh, to an abortion clinic and is driven there by Sam. So really heavy episode eight that is also on the opposite side. The girls find out Sheila, it's her birthday, and they take her to a roller rink. And I love that Sheila is very against it and then falls in love with roller skating. So you get this juxtaposition of a ton of dramatic stuff going on, but you also have this fun roller rink birthday party for Sheila. But yeah, it's a lot to swallow in one episode for the drama. I like the Sheila stuff. I think it's much needed in this episode. I think – Sadly, in this era, I think any time a show portrays abortion in this way, I think it's it's super important, and it's a decision that probably needs to be talked about a lot more in even more mainstream shows. But in terms of what they were doing here, I think they handled it as as sensitively uh, as you can. I mean, of course, Sam is going to say stupid shit, but I mean, you kind of expect it from Sam, and I don't think he's necessarily crossing a line per se. Yeah, I think they did uh, a really good job. Debbie's husband being a part of the show after the first episode uh, is kind of unnecessary. I don't know why shows feel the need to do this. Like, this is not the first show where they have uh, a husband cheating on their wife, and then they keep the husband around. Like, when you do something like that, I don't care about the husband. And another show, 
that I don't think you've watched, Kevin, but I don't think you're going to care that I spoil it. Marvelous Mrs. Maisel kind of did something similar with uh, the husband, Joel, kind of cheating on his wife, and she goes on to have a prominent career, and he's just kind of lingering and hanging around and trying to better himself. Like, I'm sorry, I just... In a show that is intended to be about the female character, I don't really want to give a shit about the ex-husband. Again, especially in this show where there's 14 prominent female characters, I don't, I don't need to see Debbie's ex. I just don't. I'm sorry. I, you cannot get me to care about that storyline. So it's, it's kind of the weakest part of the episode for me. And I like that actor. Remind me, he's from Mad Men. I'm sorry. What is his name? Rich Summer, and I was going to say, is your real problem that you you had to see Harry Crane and Trudy having sex and you couldn't wrap your head around it? Is I that mean, the I, I can because I could separate. Um, I, I just want to know what Vincent Carthizer has to say about that. I don't need to hear what Connor has to say about this. <laughs> wow, you went the angel route. That is Justin uh, Houston brought up that storyline on one of our episodes of Fiona and Cake, of all things, and I was blown it, away. Did it make you mad all over again? No, I... I don't hate that season as much as others, especially because uh, what's her name from Firefly plays the mother and she's good. So uh, I'll take season it. three or four season three or four. four four. I like season four, but it's it gets a little weird, but I, I like some parts of it for sure. Uh, I also so, have to admit I messed up. Mark is the husband. Uh, it's Randy is their son that they have. So my apologies. Yeah. A- anytime I said Randy, I meant Mark. Uh, yeah, not, I not, like Rich Summer. I like Rich Summer on Twitter. I think he's a good follow. I think he's – I like him a lot, but I just – man, like the husband thing just doesn't – it doesn't sit right with me. Like we have two two male characters that that's all we need for this female-centric show. Like if right. you want to have Sam and Bash, fine. Everyone else just kind of go by the wayside. Fuck off. Well, in episode Keith, nine, Keith too. Keith too is fine. Keith can stay. I love Keith, man. He's so good, and, but he's also not like heavily featured. And he's he he's what he's a referee, and he's super and supportive of like his it's wife. Good. Like I think the fact that he's not prominently featured is fine. One thousand percent. He's yeah. he, and he's a very welcomed presence on the show for sure. Yeah. So in episode nine, this, the the penultimate episode, this is when they learn about Bash's woes, and the girls say, "We're going to fundraise to do this." Their car wash doesn't get him as much money as they need, but Bash's mother just so happens to be having a fundraiser and they say we can crash it and we can fundraise for ourselves. And let's just say Jerome, that Bush's mother doesn't think wrestling hits the right taste clusters. God damn it. Every fucking time, I guess, huh? <laughs> I, this I was mean, the joke. I was worried you were going to steal from me. So I had to jump in and get it. I mean, I got you with how I met your father earlier. So I, I'm satisfied <laughs> because I think that legitimately made you mad. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, I feel like uh, we're, we're dead even, but, Here's the one thing I will say is that I can picture that fundraiser like just these fucking Reagan Republicans yep. just coming together talking about how great they are and just like this moral like – because here's here's the thing. Like I don't think there's a lot of pretext to morality on the right now. Back then there was like this veneer of, oh, we're going to – we're going to do the right thing. Like we're going to say no to drugs and shit like that. Like the hypocrisy is just so out there and – Again, I want to point out that the way they dress the characters is chef's kiss, spectacular. Like, they dress them up perfectly. Each character, like, I can't even imagine the work that goes in. So whoever the costume designer is for this show, they deserved an Emmy for this episode alone because of the dresses and what they had them wearing, especially especially Ruth. Funny you say that. I think she was nominated for Costumes Anglo. Uh, Beth Morgan is her name, and she was nominated for 
Uh, she actually received an Emmy for Deadwood. And then I believe, I don't know that she won, uh, but she is, uh, she was nominated for Glow as well. So she at least got, uh, it wasn't for that season. I think it was a season three episode that she got nominated for. And it's one of those things. It's really easy to be like, Oh, 1980s, just do this, this, and then no, 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 this is very specific. And, uh, it's, it's great. They know those characters so well. And there's some characters in wrestling. Like the one person I always think of is orange Cassidy, where it's like that guy knows that character so well that no matter what situation he puts him in, he knows the right choice that character would make. And I feel like the people playing the characters and those writing the show know exactly what those characters would do in the situations, what they would wear, how would they do their hair. Everything they do I think is like pitch perfect with those characters. I think that one of the problems – and this is a side tangent, but I don't – I think this is actually relevant – is I think TV shows and wrestling have – have con- conflated plot with character and i think that we have we are now overemphasizing plot and we have gotten away from character and i think that is illuminated both by this show in terms of and i understand that they are stereotypes and that the stereotypes are bad but the characters are so specific that the stories don't matter as much because you've just like, it's about the, the stories are centered around the characters. Whereas I feel like a lot of movies and shows and even wrestling, it's about the stories themselves. And it's less about the characters. Like how many times do you and I exchange the word lore in all caps? And (laughs) pretty often, pretty often. And I feel like the star Wars shows are just as guilty of this. I think that's, a really good example. And again, it's not that these shows and movies are all bad, but it just feels like we've gotten away from like, to me, what I enjoy about TV is the characters. And it just feels like so much of it is about plot. And I think the reason that I like the show, even if the stories are not perfect is because the characters are so well realized. That to me is the mark of a really good TV show is the ability to create characters that you can engage with and want to hang out with for five hours or on a weekly basis for 22 minutes. And I think that when you get away from that, you're really depending on the story and that definitely does not always work. Very well said. I think that is a, that is a very good point. And I think with star Wars too, it's like when you get to the plot, it's like, well, did you watch seven other shows to get the plot of this eighth show? That's a problem unless you really like those characters. There's no other place to mention this, but Mark Evan Jackson's in the show for a hot minute, and he rules, so just want to throw a shout-out to him. Uh, no, he's great. And then the stories that the girls tell about being drug addicts to to raise money, Ruth's is the one that's genuinely moving, and it's because it's very honest because she talks about losing a friend for making a mistake, and Debbie hears this, and that plays a role in episode 10. And they get the money and the donations, but the mother intercepts it knowing it's all a ruse. However, she does let them use the family ballroom as a venue. So they have a venue, the show's on, and the other big thing at the party is, well, two things with Sam. First is that Sam learns the movie that he is planning to make that Bash is going to fund is called Mothers, uh, that it's called Mothers and Lovers. Turns out that movie was already made with a film called uh, Back to the Future. I know you love this scene. Oh my god, I I just, so this, uh, this is such a gut punch, and I'll get to why in a second, but... Uh, I mean, I mean, I'm a huge Back to the Future fan. I'm sure you are as well. 
I mean, the movie is just so great. And just the way that they set it up. So they have Sam at the party and he goes to a group of black musicians and basically asks them for drugs or offers drugs. Just like back, so back to the future, the, the black musicians are, do, are smoking pot. But in this case, they're just doing cocaine because it's the 1980s, not the 1950s. So they're doing drugs and Sam is talking about this and they mention, oh, that's the plot of Back to the Future. And it's, it's so great. And then the next scene involving Sam is Sam almost kissing his daughter. I mean, it is, mm. it's so perfect. Like it's, 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 it's gallows humor for sure. But if you're going to bring up back to the future and you're going to do these connections, like let's just, let's just go there. And then the director of this episode is, uh, is Lynn Shelton who, uh, had a, a passed away very untimely, uh, was together with, um, Mark Marin romantically. And it was just really sad because, uh, I really liked the, the, the scenes that, this I really like this episode. I think episode seven is my favorite. This is probably my second favorite. And uh Lynn Shelton, it's uh it's a shame. But yeah, yeah. to see her name after this scene, it was a real it's a real gut punch and a real reminder. It was. It's very, very sad. I remember listening to the first podcast he did after she passed, and it was like hor it was so horrible to hear how much pain he was in um in that intro. It was it was it's it's awful. And it sounds like that's something that, you know, not only that she died, but he, he was the one who found her passed out in the hallway and all that stuff like that. It has to be unbelievably traumatizing, something horrible for someone to go through. Worse than even almost kissing your own daughter. So yes, that is what we hear is, you know, Justine, the reason why she's so into Sam as a director and stuff is because turns out it's his daughter. They get in a bit of a tiff. She goes away. She ends up coming to the taping at the end, but does not wrestle. It's a cute moment, but. Now we have that going into uh, season two and forward. Something else we have that's that's not closed yet is that Cherry gets an audition for a completely different role in episode nine, a TV series, and she finds out she got the part in episode 10, but she has to choose. Does she go to the TV show or does she keep doing glow? And so that's something else that we do not get to find out until later on. And then we talk about uh, the stereotypes and stuff that the characters play, and, well, you get to see the dark side of that when Beirut the bomber is facing Britannica, and fans are throwing racial epithets at, at Beirut. They spit at her. They throw stuff at her, and a beer can hits Britannica in the head. Uh, wrestling fans are terrible, and they still are. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would love to tell you that this is an inaccurate portrayal of wrestling fans, and... Uh, there are, there are some good ones and there are many good ones, in fact, but, uh, there's, uh, there's too many bad ones. And I think this is a, a very fair representation. I think that there is a stereotype about wrestling fans and their behavior and their spending habits. And I don't think all of that is accurate, but you do get these moments and it, it sucks. I mean, I also think about like, uh, when certain female wrestlers wrestle and, um, there are pictures that are posted online of their bodies and it's just really gross. And it's, 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 it can be really gross, especially with the women. That's all, that's all I'm going to say. I'm going to leave it alone, but it's, uh, it's bad. And, uh, wrestling companies need to do a better job of, uh, enforcing policies against that crap. Yes, I will say wrestling fans are much more progressive and polite in general. That isn't to say that it's perfect. No fandom is right, but I will say it is. It we have definitely come along. It is. It has gotten. It has definitely gotten better. Like AEW can have gay wrestlers talk about being gay and get cheered, 
which is not something that would have happened 20 years ago. Yep. Or, you know, fans holding up trans rights or human rights, stuff like that and getting acknowledged. Yes. Really good stuff in general. So, but yes, this is, this is the problem. You know, you get, you, you play, you play to type. And I think when you're performing in a gym and honing your character, it's one thing, but then putting it in front of actual people and seeing the response is a whole nother thing that emotionally maybe that uh, Beirut was not prepared for. You get a nice moment where Machu Picchu fights off her stage fright thanks to her father, Goliath Jackson's in the crowd sharing her name. You know what? You get a nice cheesy 80s moment in a, che- in a cheesy 80s show. I like this. I did too. I mean, again, I think so. One of the other things that I was realizing, and I more realized this when watching uh, the documentary, is – and I think this is something that the 90s was such a kind of a response that we're still kind of dealing with that, is the 80s uh, was very much into the idea of doing camp, but doing camp in a sincere, not self-aware way. And I think that's something that we are so afraid of. I think we're kind of, we're kind of getting back to it. I think there, there are definitely some signs and some movies and shows that are like trying to get us back to that point. But I think part of the reason the glow is, the glow works is because it is camp. It's not trying to be anything else, but they're also not like they're playing into it as opposed to like being ironic and winking at the camera. So. That's something that I really liked about this moment is that it is sincere, it is campy, and I think it just works. And uh, I think we should be more campy. I think we should bring it back. I think that's where things get more fun. And I'm not saying – like not everything has to be super serious. And I think I think that's another issue with, with shows and movies is that some of them refuse to be funny and – Sometimes it's okay to laugh. Even in the non-comedy, it's okay to laugh. Mad Men is one of the funniest fucking shows, even though it's like the super serious prestige drama. That is one of the funniest shows. Better Call Saul is a very funny show. We need more of that. That's that's all I'm saying. I definitely agree with you. And there's some shows that uh, try to be funny and forget the jokes, such as a show you may have mentioned earlier. <laughs> It all, it all comes back to that, huh? It's all it really does. You've, you've really got me going, my friend. <laughs> so beginning of the episode, Debbie says, you know what? I'm, I have to leave Glow to work things out with my husband. But she still shows up to the taping. of Randy thinks everything is very silly, which she, of course, does not appreciate. Sam also calls her a quitter. And, well, this is obviously a problem because Zoya and Liberty Bell was going to be our main event. So it is changed to Zoya and Fortune Cookie against the beatdown biddies. But during the match, Ruth turns on her own partner and pins her to win the glow crown. But Liberty Bell from the crowd comes out and they have their match and she hits this crossbody she's been working on for the show and she wins the glow crown. It was all a ruse, a cunning attempt to trick everybody with Debbie and Ruth. I really needed the ex-husband to say it was fucking fake. (laughs) Like if I had gotten that, then I would have been like, Debbie, you get to do whatever you want now because he said the magic word. And uh, I will say the crossbody is a pretty basic move. This show puts over the crossbody so well that I, I, I'm impressed at what they did to that very simple move. And and I think it, what what I find interesting is that it's part of the reason she wants something that's high flying is because she gets to see Christopher Daniels do the moonsault. And I'm like, oh, is she going to do a moonsault? But maybe it's either it's too complicated or wasn't going to work or, you know, female anatomy maybe make that diff- more difficult to do so they want the crossbody. And it worked. They, 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 you build it up, you pay it off. It worked very well. And hey, Daniels does have a pretty sweet moonsault, though. It was him against uh, Kazarian, his tag team partner, and you got to see them wrestle as a team in that building. 
It's, How about uh, it's that? pretty amazing. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty wild because I looked at the 2014 Battle of Los Angeles weekend and I realized that I did in fact see Daniels and Kazarian wrestle together in that building. So it's uh it all comes back, man. It all comes that back. lineup is unbelievable. It is uh it is pretty great. It is uh it's pretty remarkable uh to see, but no women because PWG banned women for years. Uh, Candace LeRae was except in for Candace LeRae. I, I I should say they didn't have all women's wrestling matches no, for good. a long time. One of PWG's many flaws. Anyways, so that's the ending is Liberty Bell's there with their crown, but Sam's thinking on his feet and thwarts their plan by sending Welfare Queen to go out, pin Liberty Bell, and steal the crown. And Debbie and Ruth, they, they are professional, but they're like, what the hell is going on? And Sam says, I didn't want it to end predictably, and he uses the word, the money is in the chase. Something you hear about wrestling promoters saying all the time, it's not – it's not so much about the good guy being on top forever. It's about them chasing the bad guy. I uh, really wish someone in wrestling had told Sam that line instead of because it, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel organic. That Sam I agree. That. Yes, it's like where did he learn this? Why would he know? I mean, I don't think that's something. It's just a film director you would have learned. So, what is he studying? Who told him this? Yeah, it, it feels a little out of left field. Like but I think I, if you do it as like if he get like let's say he just goes to like like an NWA show or some equivalent to that. And like, it's like a super serious wrestling show, but he's told like offhandedly, like the money is in the case. And then he brings that line back. Like, I think it it, it actually would work a lot more. Like he sees a dusty finish where it does. You you see the good guy, maybe won the title, but then no, the bad guy still has it. And he's like, what the heck? Why was that? And he talks to somebody and they explain to him and he's like, Oh, okay. So what you're saying is uh, we we need to finish the story? Well, yes. I guess so. I guess in a way we are. Uh, Nobody throws a a rubber chicken in the ring at the end of Glow, though. Uh, What I do like, though, is the the reality that both Debbie and Ruth feel like they did a good job in their match. And Ruth's like, oh, why don't we get a drink? And Debbie's like, no, we're not there yet. So I do like that. It's like, okay, we can work together. We do work well together. But we're not at the place where we can go get a, a post-match drink together to celebrate. I think that's that's very honest about where they are. It's a very nice moment. I think they both play really well too. And I had no memory of the credit scene where Bash is hurriedly running the videotape to be played and then the girls having a viewing party and just seeing Bash's uh, introduction to the gorgeous ladies wrestling. But that's how the show ends and uh, I, I had a good time watching this. Your overall thoughts on season one? I think it's a very easy watch. Ten episodes, half hour. I think that's what that's part of the appeal. The ca- the casting is great. The writing is sometimes good. It's sometimes not so good. But I think that this cast is able to carry us through the moments that maybe don't work as well. And that's really what matters to me is that at the end of the day, like I don't I don't need a TV show to be perfect. I need something that if I watch it, my my insult it might intelligence is not insulted i'm enjoying the experience of watching the show i think that to me is what stands out the most is that the experience of watching this show these characters the directing like that is the that's the best part and even if things aren't perfect this is still a show that i would come back to and watch again in a heartbeat this is a show that in a universe where there aren't three thousand of them i could watch this once a year and get a very pleasurable rewatch from it. A hundred percent agreed. And as you said, an extremely easy watch. You know, I, I took this in about two episodes a night. I could have done more if I wasn't, you know, taking notes for the podcast, but I had a really good time rewatching season one. I'm very excited to watch season two. 
And the show was renewed for a second season on August 10th, 2017. So about six weeks after it aired, it finally got renewed, which was a sigh of relief to everybody, I'm sure. And uh, we'll be covering that next month here on Cancel Too Soon. And uh, I will very much look forward uh, to doing that because I'd like to see if, again, I haven't watched this in a while, but if memory serves me correctly, I remember liking season two much more than season one, even in season three, uh, more than season two. So uh, I think we're on an upward trajectory from this point in a season that had a lot of, uh, a lot of throat clearing, but the characters are well established. And now we have, we have a lot of room to play with. Right. So that's kind of the thing. Season one, you know, here we're talking a lot about the characters and the backstory and all that stuff getting into it. Season two and three, we don't, we don't have that as much. We'll get a couple of new characters here and there to talk about, but really we can move on with the story now that all the, everything's been kind of put in place. And I'm excited to get to that point. In the meantime, though, before we get into season two, if you have not listened already, myself, Brad Garoon and Justin Houston reunited for our flooping the pig podcast. We covered all 10 episodes of the Max series Fiona and Cake in five podcast episodes. All of that is also now on its own feed. You can find it on Spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. All, I think it'll be 88 episodes of Flooping the Pig will be on there. It's all very evergreen. Listen to the old episodes if you haven't, or just check out the new stuff covering Fiona and Cake on Max if you haven't listened to that as of yet. And uh, all the other stuff uh, on Enter the Real World that Jerome and I do if we're canceled too soon, our breaking bad stuff, Ron Kamara's, a whole bunch of other crap we did. Go check that out at realworld.com. Jerome, what have you been up to? What have you and Brian been up to in September and October? The month of September was Creature Feature Month. We reviewed Shin Godzilla most prominently. I really like that movie. Uh, it's really a good month overall. Tremors is very good as well. Uh, this month in the month of October, uh, Kevin, we are doing a farewell tour of Superhero Pantheon. Can you believe it? We are, Brian and I are going to be closing down Superhero Pantheon, uh, possibly forever. I mean, there's, well, I, I can't believe like, that they stopped making superhero movies. Well, they have it, but we, uh, I, I'm not going to speak for Brian. I kind of want to stop covering them. As we speak, if you want to know what those are, please go listen to the podcast. I, I even rewarded Brian, Kevin. I did some one of the most magnanimous gestures of my life. I get, we did a podcast about Zack Snyder's Justice League, a podcast that will no doubt create zero controversy. Well, I think, you know, if we're going to talk about the Pantheon, I think Zack Snyder's Justice League and then it's more than time proved that you should not let uh, fans on the internet be in charge of anything. I will have many negative things to say about other DC properties as well in the month of October. Uh, Brian and I also discussed, we'll be discussing The Batman. Which is very exciting, Kevin. The Batman. If you remember that movie, that's the that's the one with uh, the person Robert Pattinson as uh, the Batman and uh, Paul Dano as the Riddler and Colin Farrell in a fat suit as the Penguin. But what about uh, what's her name for Lenny Kravitz's daughter? Isn't she in that too? She is also uh, she is Catwoman. So yeah, definitely look, look at that. We will continue with Marvel in November uh, with Spider Man into the across the Spider whatever the second one is as well as we will uh, discuss Guardians of the Galaxy 3, perhaps the last great superhero movie ever to be made. Uh, we'll see if that actually holds true. So, yes, go, definitely go check all that out. And, uh, yeah, that's all I got, Kevin. Just go listen to the podcast that I do, please. Go go listen to those, and then come back and listen to us in November when we cover Season 2 of GLOW. Well, Kevin, all I'm going to say is it's about time we've featured women's wrestling because the women wrestling journalists were not going to be happy with us.